Amen. 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 Thank you, David. Although I think you're just trying to make up for that kazoo comment uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, welcome home, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to have you back with us. Uh, if you're watching online, great to have you tuning in with us as well. And we are launching another fall ministry season. This is uh, for us as a church, a time where we kick, things kind of kick back in. And this ministry season feels different than any other fall that I've ever experienced as a pastor or being part of things here. It feels like we're in the middle of a battleground, doesn't it? When you look around at our culture, uh, there's a pandemic that we're fighting. Um, there's an election that it feels like just keeps getting nastier and nastier every day as we head toward November. There's uh, a racial equity revolution that's happening and that we're fighting for. There is, uh, you know, an economy that feels like we're not really quite sure how stable it is. Like, we're, we're in a battleground right now. That's how it feels. And so today we wanted to start a new series called Fight My Battles. We're talking about how does God call us to fight the battles that we, that we find ourselves in? How do we as God's people fight the battles that we're in? Uh, back in March, when the pandemic first hit and the shutdown happened, my wife and I started making, every night, we would make our four boys go on a walk with us. Some of you maybe started your own rhythms, or your own routines, uh, when everything kind of shut down. Suddenly we were at home, everything was canceled. And so we said to our boys, we're just going to start, you know, to get out of the house, to have something to do, we began to just take a, a walk every single night around our neighborhood, and we would bring our dog Bailey with us. Bailey is a, an emotionally needy beagle that we've had for several years, and so we would put her on her leash, and all of us as a family would go on a walk around the neighborhood, and we would take different turns being the one to carry the plastic Meyer bag. You know what the plastic Meyer bag is for, don't you? If you have a dog, you know what it's for. If you do not have a dog, you've watched people walking their dog by your neighborhood, and you've been thankful that uh, they've had one of these plastic bags. But one, one evening, we were walking our dog, and as we're walking along uh, around our neighborhood, our dog stops to do her business in our neighbor's grass. And so we all stop, and we're kind of waiting, and except for one of us, my son Andrew, our 17-year-old just kept walking. He just sort of kept moving, kept walking away, just leaving us there to kind of deal with the dog and what was happening, and he just kept walking. So it was my turn that night, um, so let me demonstrate the proper technique, if I can, for those of you who don't own a dog. What you do is you take the Meyer bag, you put your hand in it like this, being careful to make sure your entire hand is covered, and then you scoop down, you pick up the dog poo like this, and then you do like this. You pull the bag up. So therefore, then your hand is completely free and you haven't touched the dog poo. Thank you very much. I don't think you appreciated that, that demonstration enough. <laughs> so then you have this perfectly contained bag. You tie it up. And now you have this bag that you now get to carry for the rest of your walk. You get to carry your dog's excrement around the neighborhood. And so I pick this up and, and we begin to walk in. And I realize Andrew is way, way up in front of us. He's just completely left us behind. So I decided to have a little fun. And so I began to jog after him with the, the bag of dog poo. And I run and I catch up. And as I'm running by him, I just kind of flick the bag at him. And it just hits him. The dog poo hits him and, you know, lands on the ground. And I keep running. And a couple, you know, within a few seconds later, I can hear footsteps behind me. And I look behind me and Andrew has picked up the bag of dog poo. And now he is giving chase. <laughs> now there's a smile on his face. Okay, we're still joking around. We're still having fun. But uh, I realize I can't outrun him. Andrew is an incredible cross-country and track runner. There is no chance of me outrunning him. So what I did is I turned around just to face him. 
uh, and he runs up to me, he's smiling, and as he gets pretty close to me, he just, he flicks the bag at me, but I was ready. I knew he was coming, unlike when I did that to him, and so I dodge, and the dog poo goes flying past me, and that is the moment that I begin to mock him. Are you kidding me? You can run, but you can't throw. You missed me at point blank range. I mean, I just start laughing and mocking him. When he picked up the bag the second time, I knew I was in trouble. There's no smile on his face now. He is now coming at me, swinging the bag like David going to fight Goliath with his sling. And so immediately I realize what's about to happen. And so I start to say, Andrew, Andrew, do not throw that as hard as you can at me. Andrew, it's just a flimsy Meyer bag. Andrew, stop. He comes up to me point blank as hard as he can and just throws that thing at me. It hits me square in the chest and the bag explodes. By the way, our neighbors are watching this whole thing happen. There is now dog poo all over my clothes, on my shoes. It was even in my hair. Like an hour later, I'm still finding, you know, uh, little, little reminders of this moment. He just took it up a notch. He just escalated it and took it way too far. And he won the battle. But I assure you, because I'm the dad, I won the war. Don't worry about that at all. When you think about any kind of conflict, when, when things become a fight in our world, whether, it's, whether conflict arises with a family member, whether it's with someone at work, someone at school, someone on the other side of the political spectrum as you, whenever we find ourselves in a fight or when there's conflict that arises, the natural human response that we have is we think to win, we've got to go bigger. That's what we think as human beings. To win the battle that we find ourselves in, go bigger. So I flick a, a bag of dog poo at you. You throw it back at me as hard as you possibly can. He went bigger. Uh, you know, they post that. And so you respond bigger in the comments. Anybody seen that happening lately? Uh, they go and tell one of their friends about that thing you did. So you go and you tell three of your friends about that thing that they did. They shame your group of people. Man, you double down and you just go and absolutely humiliate their group of people that they identify with. I mean, this is the world we're living in right now, isn't it? Everywhere you look, you see this. The reaction is just bigger. Go bigger. Go b and the winner is whoever manages to go bigger and get the last word. That's how our world fights. But sometimes, in order to win the battle, what God actually calls us to do is to think smaller. God's way oftentimes to win the battles that we find ourselves in in our lives in our, is oftentimes to actually think smaller and to go smaller. That's exactly what we're going to see today in the story that we're going to look at. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon and his battle against the army of Midian. So let me set the stage for you a little bit. If you want to turn there in your Bible, you can do that. If you're following along at home, you can go and uh, look on your app. Uh, look on either the, the Zero Collective app or on the Bible app. But let me set the stage a little bit. Basically, uh, the period of the judges is when we find ourselves. There's no king in Israel. And so it was a time where Israel was very vulnerable. And there's, God uses a series of leaders, judges, who are, who are raised up to accomplish his purposes during this period of time. So it's the early 1100s BC, and suddenly the 12 tribes of Israel are overrun by this horde of nomads from the Arabian desert. They're called the Midianites. 
And because they're this nomadic group of people, uh, one of the things that we know historically about the army of Midian is that we believe they were the first people ever to make military use of this animal, the camel. So you can imagine the fear that they would have struck in the hearts of those who they were attacking. <laughs> what they would do, this, was the, this is how Midian would fight their battles. This was their military tactic. What they would do is, because, is they would spy on the different tribes, and they would kind of come gather near, and they would watch, and they would wait until their victims were in the middle of harvest. So they would wait until they were actually collecting the harvest, bringing in the harvest. The crops were right in the middle. And what they would do is they would sweep down with this surprise attack with their camels, and they would destroy or completely carry off every last bit of the harvest. So not only was it like a humiliating military defeat, but it would devastate the economy. It would absolutely obliterate their, the economy. And so this, this crop that you'd worked for, this harvest that you were bringing in, that was supposed to last you for the winter, just like that, it's gone. And these people have just carried it off, and now you're left with nothing. And so in Judges 6, we find Gideon. Gideon is a depressed farmer in Israel, and basically he's hiding in a wine press. His entire crop has been taken away by the army of Midian. They've, they've swooped in in this surprise attack, and now he's found himself completely depressed. He's completely without any kind of hope, and he's quite literally drowning his sorrows. He's hiding in a wine press, just waiting, just trying to figure out, what do I do next? And it's this, at this moment, it says, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Now, whenever you see that phrase, specifically that phrase, the angel of the Lord, whenever you see that in the, New, or in, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, that scholars call that a theophany. Whenever that phrase is used, the angel of the Lord appeared, a theophany is uh, an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ. In the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, this is before the New Testament where Jesus comes in the flesh. So this is God, God pre-incarnate appearing to Gideon, and this is what he says to Gideon. This is the first time uh, the Lord speaks. It says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I want to just stop there and just say to you, in this one sentence, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's what he says to Gideon. God has just told Gideon everything he needs to win the battle that he's going to be up against. In that one statement, he's just given Gideon everything he needs. He, he doesn't need anything else. He's got everything he needs right in that one statement. What's so powerful about this moment, he, says, he calls him mighty warrior. Well, Gideon up to this point in the story has done nothing to earn that title. He's not a mighty warrior. He's a depressed farmer with nothing hiding in a wine press. That's what he is. And he basically says, you're a mighty warrior, but not because of your own merit, not because of anything you've done, but it's because I am with you. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This is such a beautiful picture. Uh, it's a foreshadowing of the gospel. And what Jesus does is he comes and, and to be flesh and to live among us, he is with us. And what he does is, is by his power and who he is, he calls us what we are not. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who had no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus comes and he comes and he, to take on our debt and our debt is transferred to him and then his life, his identity is transferred to us. His righteousness is transferred to us. So he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's what he says to Gideon. And in this moment, Gideon has everything he's going to need to be able to fight the battle that he's in 
to be able to go forward. And so let's look at how Gideon responds, and maybe you might see yourself a little bit in the way that you respond to the gospel message oftentimes. Gideon says, um, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why? Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So, so his immediate response is the question, he says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why? Why is my crop gone? Why are we under attack? If the Lord is with us, why are we struggling like this? Why are all these bad things happening? Why is this army getting the upper hand over us? Has anybody else asked the why question since March? Anybody besides me? If the, if the Lord is with us, why? Why are fires raging out of control and protests happening? If the Lord is with us, why isn't there a vaccine? If the, if the Lord is with us, you know, why aren't my kids back in school? Why are we struggling like this? Why, why are we undergoing all this division and struggle? If the Lord is with us, why? That's the question he asks. What's interesting is that when you look at the way that God responds to him in this moment, God never really answers the why question. He just puts Gideon on mission. Take a look. This is how he responds. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Right? Like I already told you, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Am I not sending you? Take a look at Gideon's response. Uh, pardon me, Lord. Can you hear his voice? It's like, pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied. But how? How? How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. He says it a second time, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So the second response, after asking the why question and, and getting nowhere with that one, he asks, how? How in the world are you going to be with me? How in the world am I going to rescue Israel out of Midianites' hands, out of these attacks that we're under? How in the world am I going to do that? And, and pay attention to his logic here. I don't know if you noticed it. He says, I'm the smallest and weakest person in the smallest and weakest clan and the smallest and weakest tribe. Uh, hear his logic? You got to go bigger to win. Everybody knows that. If you want to win, you got to go bigger. You got to one-up your enemy. You got to come back with a bigger show of force. I'm not your guy. I, I'm a part of the weakest tribe. I'm the weakest person in the weakest tribe. How am I going to do that? How in the world are you going to use me to do that? Notice the one thing that Gideon has not said yet to the Lord is yes. He hasn't said yes yet. We've talked about this so, so many times. Over and over again, when, you talk, when we talk about what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to take a step of faith? What does it mean to, to embrace the gospel and take a step forward and trust God in our lives in faith? It's always a move. You see this again and again in Scripture. It's always a move of yes before how. We always have to say yes even before we know the how. Understanding is the gift that we get after we express faith. 
We don't get it on the front end. Oftentimes, we, we put these things backwards, right? We think, well, if, if you just explain how, God, if you just give me like the three to five year plan and then the contingency plan in case that doesn't work out and then give me eight signs. By the way, if you continue to read that, Gideon asks the Lord for a sign again and again. He keeps saying, give me a sign, give me a sign, tell me how, tell me how, tell me how. That's not the way faith works. Faith is always a move of saying yes, even when I don't fully understand the how. That's when you see God move most powerfully in Scripture. It's when you see God move and, and break through in our lives. Breakthrough always comes in our own lives. Over and over again, we see it when we say yes before how. So I'll tell you how the story proceeds. You go into Judges chapter 7. Gideon is like, okay, finally, yes, God, but I have no clue how, how you're going to do this. And so what Gideon does is he musters together as big of an army as he could possibly get, right? Because to win, you got to go bigger. That's what he's thinking. And so he gathers together 32,000 men to fight as an army against the army of Midian. Does anybody else, that, that sounds like a pretty good army, doesn't it? 32,000 men sounds pretty good. That's a pretty sizable army to be able to muster in a very short amount of time. And so what happens in Judges 7 is he presents this 32,000-person army before the Lord, and the Lord says, actually, Gideon, you've got too many men. Your army's too big to fight against the army of Midian. Your, your strength and your trust is still going to be in your own strength. It's going to be in your men. It's going to be in the size of your army. It's going to be in your own ability to do battle. I can't, I can't do what I want to do with the size of your army. So what God does is he pre prescribes a test. And from that test, he narrows the army down from 32,000 to 10,000 fighting men. And so now we have an even smaller army. And, and again, Gideon presents them to the Lord. And God once again says, you know, it's still too big. <laughs> even at 10,000 men, you're still going to think that this was you. You're still going to rely on your own strength. You're going to go into battle thinking it's all on you. And the power is, is going to come from your strength. I, I can't do this battle with 10,000 men. And so he prescribes a second test, and he narrows the army down from 10,000 men to 300 men. That's Gideon's army, 300 men. And this is not like the, the movie 300, okay, where the guys are like buffed with six-pack abs. These are like some chubby farmers, okay, with pitchforks and farm tools. Like these are not battle-hardened soldiers that are ready for it. That's not what we're talking about. This is 300 farmers. That's, what, that's who it is. And God says, perfect. <laughs> now you're ready. Because there is no way you could possibly take credit for what I'm about to do. He narrows it down to 300 men. I want to really drive this point home for you. I want you to really see how overwhelming the odds were against Gideon. Uh, what it says in Judges 8.10 is that the army of Midian numbered 135,000 men. And so I did a little math. By the way, pastors can do math, kind of. And so Gideon starts out with 32,000 men. Against 135,000 men, he starts out being outnumbered four to one. God narrows down the army to 10,000. Now at 10,000 men, they are outnumbered 13 and a half to one. Their odds just got a lot more stacked against them. And then they go down to 300 men. Now they are outnumbered 450 to one. And this is in, in an era and a time of hand-to-hand -hand combat. This was not, you know, this was not like technological warfare. The odds are completely stacked against them. Do you feel like the odds are stacked against you right now? As, even as I've been talking to, to many people here at Frontline and even people outside of Frontline, that's the general feeling many of us have. 
It just feels like the odds are stacked against us. Maybe in your marriage, you feel like the odds are stacked against you. Like so much water has gone under the bridge. So much difficult things have happened. Carrie and I, at one point in our marriage, felt like that. Like, man, the odds are just stacked against us. The odds of us work, being able to work through this and be out on the other side of it are, are just too great. Maybe with your kids, you're looking at what's happening with your kids, and you're saying the odds are just stacked against us to be able to see an out, a good outcome here with our kids. Maybe it's with your job. Maybe it's just, maybe your resources in this season have been whittled down and narrowed down to next to nothing, and you're going, man, I don't know, I don't know where, where you know, help is going to come from. Listen to me. God may have you exactly where he wants you so that your trust and your dependence is not on you, not on your strength. Sometimes God wants to bring us to seasons and to places in our lives where he whittles down our resources, whittles down the, thing that, the things that we put our strength and our trust and our hope in so that he can show us who he is to us. When the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, you have everything you need to do battle. You have everything you need in him. All that's required is for you to say yes, even when you don't know the how. And so we don't bring our strength to the battle. We bring our weakness. We don't bring our solutions. We bring our surrender. We don't bring our good ideas. and we, we don't put it on our shoulders and carry the weight ourselves. We bring our humility. We bring our dependence on God. We bring our trust. That's what we bring to the table. We say yes, even when we don't know the how, and God does the rest. That's the story. That's the understanding we have of what the gospel message is. It's not resting on our shoulders or on our merit. It's us putting our faith and our trust in God and what he did for us on the cross. That's where victory comes from. That's how the battle is won. We've seen that. I've seen that in my own life personally. In, in our marriage, we've seen that. In this church, we've seen that again and again and again. God is the one who has to win the battle. And that's exactly what you see in this story. So what happens is, out of this moment with 300 men, God says to Gideon, Gideon, I want you to go and I want you to spy on the Midianite camp. So he literally goes out in the desert, he creeps down, and he listens in. And this is what he hears as he's spying on the Midianite camp. Uh, verse 13, it says, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Can you imagine being Gideon and hearing this? Like, like you're like, what, they're afraid of us? Like, we got 300 men. But God had made the Midianites afraid of Gideon. You know, God can make your enemies afraid of you, not by your strength or your power, but by what he's doing. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He realizes what's about to happen. He returned to the camp of Israel and he called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So suddenly in this moment, Gideon knows what to do. And so what he does is he takes his 300 men, it's an incredible story, and they go in the middle of the night and they surround the Midianite camp. So now it's the middle of the night, they're all kind of, you know, asleep and they surround and uh, Gideon says, bring kazoos, I mean trumpets, and bring a torch and put it in a jar. So they've all got torches and jars. And when Gideon gives the signal, 
they break the chars, they light the torches, and they blow the trumpets, and then they scream, for the Lord and for Gideon. Can you imagine being in the Midianite camp, and suddenly you're like woken up by the sound of trumpets, and these guys yell, and you look, and all around you, you just see these torches, and and you're already afraid of Gideon. God had already made them afraid of, of Gideon. What do they think? We're about to get killed. That's what they think. And so they go into a panic. There's such confusion. What happens is they literally draw their swords. And then waking up in the confusion, they begin to kill each other. They begin to turn against each other. They're divided within their own camp. And they start to kill each other. And then they begin to run. And Gideon and his 300 men give them chase. It's this incredible miracle moment in the story of scripture where God intercedes for his people. He, he opens up a door to de- protect them and to defend them, and he sends the enemy running. The best part of this to me when you read it is there is no plan beyond this. <laughs> I love this plan. These guys go in, 300 guys, they, they do this thing, they surround the camp, they yell, and everybody starts killing each other in the Midianite camp. And then I got to imagine Gideon and his 300 men are just kind of like, now what? <laughs> There was no plan beyond that. There's no plan that God gives them beyond that. There was no three to five year plan. There was no contingency plan if this didn't work out. Like what if they realize it's just 300 of us? Nothing like that. There was no plan. It was just take the next step. Here's the next step. Just take the next obedient step. Say yes even before you know the how. Just take the next step. That's all there is. And they don't get anything beyond that. That to me feels much like the season that we're in right now. We don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. We don't know the plan one month from now, two months from now, three months from now. I can't tell you how many people keep asking me, what do you think is going to happen by this time, by this time, by this time, as if I have some sort of, I don't know, Holy Spirit crystal ball that I'm looking into. Like, I don't know. I couldn't have told you this is where we were going to be right now. That's all we get. All we get is the next opportunity to say yes, even when we don't know the how, and put our faith and our trust in him to win the battle for us. So the whole thing I want to just sort of elevate from this story today is this idea, don't pursue how, pursue him. Right now, wherever you're at, whatever battle you're facing right now, don't pursue how, pursue him. How are we going to win the season we're in? By pursuing him. Not our own plans, not our own ability to answer our own questions for ourselves, And it's not like they just trusted God and it was all over quickly. I got to tell you, um, I have read this story, the story of Gideon and the Midianites. I've read it, I I could, hundreds of times probably, ever since I was a a high school student. I've preached to to students on this message. I've preached here at Frontline on the story before of Gideon and the Midianites. This is not the first time I've done this. When I was studying for this message, I saw something I've never, ever seen in this story. Something, it was, it was a sentence, it was a statement that jumped off the page for me. Have you ever had that happen? Maybe you've read the Bible for years and years. Maybe you're new to the Bible, so it's all new to you. But if you've read the Bible for years and years, this happens sometimes where it's like, you've read this story a million times, but suddenly you read it, and because of the season you're in, because of, of what you're going through, God will just put his finger right on one little sentence, one little moment, something that you never saw suddenly comes to light. As I was preparing for this message, God did that for me. And so after the battle, after God performs this miracle, and the Midianite army is running scared, Judges 8.4 says this. 
Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. That phrase, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, jumped off the page for me. And when I read it, I just went, how could I have never seen that before? That's me right now. That's me. I think sometimes God gives us seasons in our lives where we've been dependent on him, where we've prayed to him, we've sought him, we've taken the faith step, and then there are seasons where we are just exhausted, and it's okay to be exhausted, but you got to keep up the pursuit. You got to keep pursuing him, not how. You got to keep pursuing him. I'm going to tell you, usually, I've been at this church for 19 years. I love fall. I love September. It feels like electricity. You know, it's like new things are in the air. It's, a, it's the beginning of a new ministry season. Things, the school year starts up again. The church kind of fires up again. Normally, this time of year, I'm coming off of, you know, a summer where I've had some time to recharge and refresh and get my bearings. <laughs> For the last few years, we've actually had Christmas, our Christmas services planned in September. No joke. We've gotten to a point where we've just gotten good at planning and we've, we've had, we've known the last few years, what we were going to do at Christmas. Can I tell you right now, this summer has not played out that way for me at all. I am exhausted, personally. I, every single day, it feels like I've had some decision to make. And you know why I'm having to make all these decisions? It's because nobody agrees on anything right now. And, and plans, we've made plans, and then they've had to be canceled or rearranged, and then we've had to set new plans. You've lived this life too. I know you have. And right now it's like Christmas. I don't know what we're, what are we going to do in October? I don't even know. That's the place that God has us. It's been a, a narrowing and a whittling away and a stripping down of things that we've come to rely on. I felt like what the Lord said to me, what I just want to say to you is it's okay to be exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit. There are seasons where that's the right move. And so the whole point I, I want to kind of get us to focus in on is keep up the pursuit. You can be exhausted. That's okay. But just don't give up the pursuit. Don't give up the pursuit. What's been the most troubling thing for me in the last six months or so has been the fact that it feels like as a church and as God's people, we've kind of just stopped taking our next step of faith as individuals. So what is it for you? What's your next step? For some of you, your next step is to stop resisting God, stop making excuses, and to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. To confess him as Lord and Savior and to surrender your life fully to him and say, you can have all of me. For some of you, your next step is baptism. You know that's your next step. You know it's time to go public with your faith. And by the way, we have scheduled our next baptism. It's going to be October 25th. And uh, we're going to do everything we can to make that as safe as possible and, and follow, you know, as many guidelines as we can. Is everybody going to be in agreement on how we do it and whether we should do it or not? No, I can promise you won't. But let me just make this statement. COVID does not get to decide when we quit doing baptisms, okay? <laughs> COVID doesn't get to decide when you're done and your faith and your trust in Jesus. For some of you, your next step 
is to get involved serving in a ministry. For, for like six months, you've been sitting back and it's been a season, an exhausting season. And it's been a struggle. It's time to get involved. It's time to join a ministry team. It's time to take that step to connect. David just talked about small groups. Some of you, your next step is to join a small group. We're going to launch some online small groups. We're going to have physical in-person ones, but also some that are only going to be started, brand new started online. We're doing everything we can to make it possible for you to take your next step. If you're watching online right now, you can click the menu button on our online campus and you can fold it down and it says next steps. You can click right on that button that says next steps. It'll take you right there. Keep up the pursuit. Take your next step. That's the season we're in. God doesn't give us the three to five year plan. I'm thankful for seasons in my life where he strips away the things that I've almost without meaning to become dependent on, my plans, my ability to predict where things are going next, my comfort level. Because it's in seasons like this that he draws near and I see him move in my life in ways I could never have imagined. I'm thankful for the times in my life where I didn't know how it was gonna turn out. Because I've, I've seen story after story after story of God's faithfulness in moments where only he could take credit. Would you pray with me? And now, Lord Jesus, we just come before you. For some of us, God, in a very real sense, we are hiding in the wine press right now. We're discouraged, we're defeated. Today, Jesus, we receive from you those words I am with you, mighty warrior. We receive the truth, God, that even though we don't know how the battle is going to play out, we don't know why all these things have happened in in the way they have, we know you. And so we say, yes, Jesus, we will keep up the pursuit. Exhausted, we will keep up the pursuit. We will be a people on mission. We will be a people who step out in faith and trust you. Because, God, we want to see revival in our land. We want to see miracles happen. We want to see dead brought back to life, family members healed and brought back to to community with you. We want to see your church rise up like we've just been singing about this morning. So have your way, God. Would you move in power as only you can? And, And for you, you will be the one who gets the glory. At the end of the day, you will be the one who gets the praise. It will be your name that is made famous. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.